This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Richard Hewitt. So coming up, we cast our eye over the draw for the group stage of the OFC Champions League. Can Fiji's representatives topple their rugby league rivals from PNG and win the Melanesian Cup for the first time? We have some uh, campaigners who are, have played in, in the years before who are in the team. So we're still confident that we'll uh, put up a good, a good challenge with uh, PNG coming this time. And Marshall Island's bid to join the world soccer family has sparked a romantic global reaction, but have the harsh realities of the task ahead been overlooked? One of the mapping we're trying to do is their football pitch around each of those communities so that when somebody trains them, they have places to play, because right now there is none. We'll hear more from Divine Whitey from the Marshall Islands Soccer Federation a little later in the programme. First this morning, in the world of soccer, the talk in the Pacific in recent weeks has centred on the push to establish a professional league with FIFA apparently on board to assist. But a professional league is about much more than putting 22 players on the field. The support behind the scenes has to be first class. And right now, the plight of Papua New Guinea's former national captain, Alvin Comalong, would suggest that situation in PNG is sadly lacking. The central defender has sustained a knee injury, which could be career-ending if he can't get the treatment he needs sooner rather than later. But with medical insurance non-existent in PNG's National League and medical expertise within the game somewhat lacking, Comalong is having to seek help overseas. And to do that, he needs money, money which his club, Lay City, doesn't have, and nor would it appear, at the moment at least, does the PNG FA. So now the player has embarked on a 60,000 Kina public fundraising campaign. That's around $25,000. Comalong says one of the wider issues he's keen to highlight is the lack of information that's available to players and the poor management of injuries. His own injury has been made worse by continuing to play, and he says if PNG is to enter the professional world, the situation has to change. Within club football and PNG in general, there's not really much a physiotherapist can do if the information is not available. And that's, you know, scanning and MRI scans, which cost a fortune. And just being in that environment where a physio knows how to really rehabilitate an injured player and get them back to a certain threshold, the capacity just isn't there. There's probably a handful which can do it, but in lay that capacity isn't really there. That high performance rehabilitation physiotherapy isn't there. And with international matches, you know, going into the Melanesian Cup in Vanuatu. If I was advised better and if the medical team knew more of the injury, then I probably wouldn't have gone knowing what I know now. But it didn't play into a decision-making matrix at the time, so I didn't feel any pain, went ahead and exacerbated it. Of course, you've had experience of, of playing abroad uh, in Germany. I'm guessing, therefore, you know very well what a system can look like as compared to what it does look like in, in Papua New Guinea, which tells me that every time even a player of your standing, as you know, a recognised yeah. international player, you take a risk when you go out on the field. Oh, 100%. In Germany, I also had an injury there, and within two days you're into 
maybe an operation or so, and then you're literally in a rehabilitation center Monday to Friday with a personally assigned physiotherapist who's on your case every day, making sure you do what you have to do to get back in time to play because it costs the club money when you're out injured and they want to see that you're getting back to full fitness as soon as you can so you can help the team. But here in PNG, that just doesn't exist. It's also just a lack of awareness on the players' part. I mean, they've never been exposed to something like that. They're not aware that they can do this and do that or that ultimately your body is your bread and butter. It's part of what I'm trying to do as well is raise awareness because players that I know that are injured and they're actually playing through injuries and you know their whole running form has changed because they're carrying an injury that they won't rehabilitate. There's talk of a professional league with OFC in talks quite recently with FIFA about what that might look like. Surely FIFA must be saying to OFC that the situation you're in cannot be allowed to be repeated. Otherwise, that's not a professional league. Exactly. It's good that they're talking about it and they want to get it off the ground. But there's a lot of things that have to happen. And, you know, player welfare isn't really on the top of the list. And I know a lot of players that suffer not just with getting paid as compensation, but on the medical side, you know, medical insurance should be compulsory and it should be in your contract that if you get injured in a certain way, the the club is liable to take care of you. That's a big thing that needs to happen, especially in the environment we play in, in the Pacific as well with the heat. It all plays a factor in it. If you're going to be professional, that's one of the major things that also has to be included for players. So when you look at the comparable situation that you described earlier in Germany, and now here you are in a situation where where you're having to fundraise to try and essentially go abroad and get treatment on an injury, which if it's not properly treated, I mean, it could be the difference between your career continuing or ending. It's a mess, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> to be frank, it's a yeah. mess. Yeah, I mean, it's the last thing I'd like to do to go out and ask people to donate money, but it's threatening my career and my form of income. And I'm only 28, a lot more years left in me to play football and really give back something to the code. And so I'll, I'll do everything that I can to get myself sorted and get back on the field so that I can put in 100% performances. What, if any, assistance are you getting from the Papua New Guinea Football Association? Uh, are they able to help? Are they trying to help or have they just not done anything? Well, I've had a few conversations with them. They've indicated that they want to help. I believe they've been busy over in Rwanda with the FIFA Congress, so I, I haven't heard much from them lately, but hopefully I'll hear something from them in the next week or so. And I was told by the president himself that they would try and help in whatever way they can. You would think, though, that the PNGFA would be bending over backwards to do whatever they can to help a player of your standing, (laughs) national captain. Why wouldn't they help you? Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to think that too, but unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure. I I don't have an explanation for it. It's just the environment here. And I can talk all I want about how it is like where I am in the professional world, but it's some people, they, you know, it just, you won't understand it unless you've lived really in it and been through the situation and know what it's like deep in that professional environment so it's i mean i'd i'd want to like say more but it won't benefit me by going out and calling this out calling that out so i just do what i can and hopefully people get on board with it and are people rallying around fans of the club fans of the national team fellow players the general public are they getting behind you yeah generally i've had a good response i've had a lot of messages um, from people not just in png but abroad that have pledged support and you know their best wishes it started off for me but then it became something to bring more awareness to the issue i know for every alvin there's probably 10 other players who also suffer from some chronic knee problem or ankle or something that they suffered playing in the nsl or for png that they're not aware of that they can get sorted. So they end up just 
playing with a chronic injury and you see their performances drop. There's a few notable players in the national team that I know play with these chronic injuries where if that medical treatment was there, they would be able to maybe sort themselves out earlier before it's too late. And just to come back to the fundraising, yeah. what are the next steps in, in that process? What have you got lined up to try and reach your target of 60,000 keener, isn't it? To be honest, the actual surgery cost is a bit higher. I've only put 60,000 for the wider public if they want to help with that. I've also written to my own club, corporates, government ministers to help with the other portion of it. It's over 100,000 keener in total. So I'll see what I can raise from what I put out to the public public and hope to top that up with some corporate sponsorship. If the money comes in tomorrow, the amount that I need, I'm gone the next day to get the operation. But I'm hoping the way it's going right now towards mid-April, I'm trying to get it done in Qatar, Aspatar Academy. I had a former colleague, he used to be a physio for the under-23s, he's working over there. So I, I reached out to him with the injury and asked him for a bit of advice. And that's where the conversation started about surgery. So if not Qatar, then I looked to Australia. Alvin, come along, former captain of the PNG Capitals. If you'd like to contribute to his fundraising campaign, you can contact him directly at his email address, which is uh, alvincomalong at gmail.com. Alvin spent A-L-W-I-N and Comalong, K-O-M-O-L-O-N-G. I'm sure football fans in Papua New Guinea will know that very well, but just in case, alvincomalong at gmail.com. We wish him well, and it would be nice to see the PNG FA sort out a situation for a player that has given so much to his country and still has plenty more to give. You're with Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia. It's the Friday morning sporting edition with me, Richard Ewart. And the Melanesian Cup is back after an enforced COVID break with the Rugby League champions of Papua New Guinea, the Hello Wigmen, facing off against Fiji State champions, the Western Maroons in Latoka tomorrow. And it promises to be a great afternoon for the local fans with the Kaiviti Silktails taking on the Canterbury Bulldogs in the Ron Massey Cup as a curtain raiser. In four previous Melanesian Cup encounters, PNG has come out on top against their Fijian rivals every time. In two of those games, coach Velatawaki was on the losing side against the Lay Snacks Tigers. But he's quietly optimistic that his Maroons will prove to be a sterner test for the Wigmen. However, Tawaki says preparations for the big game have been far from ideal. It's supposed to be, but there's been some challenges here in our preparation. It's one game annually that we always look up to, but our preparation was not that good. We're still optimistic. We still have the talents out here. What were the problems that you've encountered then? I, mean, I gather one of them at least was actually getting the players together so you could work with them. You're correct. You are very correct, yes. Most of them are at work and it's uh, their availability to come together and train. Only about 50% who are following our training programs in the preseason up to now. We have some uh, campaigners who are, have played in, in the years before who are in the team. So we're still confident that we'll put up a good, a good challenge with uh, PNG coming this time. So is this a case that if, if the team that you have assembled, if they've been able to get together as often as clearly you would like, and if they play to the level that they did that got them the state championship, that they could very well test the Wigman, who are, after all, essentially a semi-professional outfit. Of course, you're correct, you're correct. What is uh, always a problem with our team here in Fiji is the financial uh, support compared to the uh, people coming in from uh, our millions and brothers from PNG. 
How much of a difference, though, will it make for you to be playing the game on home territory? And I'm wondering also to what degree you might be a little bit inspired by the fact that the Silt Tails are there now playing their home games in Fiji. Uh, We're very inspired by the system that the Silt Tail has brought in. And so just lately, the Fiji National Rugby League has introduced the high performance unit. I've been staging in all sides of the country. So, uh, we are glad we have that, and it's just a bit early for players to uh, be aware and uh, be promoted to the system. Does that mean, do you think, perhaps that in, in future years, if you're involved once again with this match against uh, the champions of Papua New Guinea, that maybe the preparation will be different? You'll, you'll get more of the sort of backing uh, that yes, you didn't yes. get this time. Yes, we don't get this time. I believe uh, here in Fiji we have the expertise, we have the coaches and all uh, the technicalities. It's only the funding that's a lot of difference yeah, in our preparation between the two countries. And what about the way the game is being run in Fiji now? We, we've already seen a lot of changes in, in sport in Fiji since, of course, the, the last election and, and the change of government. I mean, is the same thing happening within the FNRL? It's all the same. It's all the same. Uh, at the moment, uh, there's, been, uh, there's been a few changes. There's a change in the head coach here in Fiji. And uh, at the moment, I cannot uh, disclose uh, any more information uh, until confirmed. There's a few changes in the officials. And uh, we are very glad that uh, Wes, the new coach, has come from Australia. Just one of our local boys. And uh, he has initiated a lot of new things because uh, of his expertise and, and connection there in Australia, bringing a lot of information back home. And probably we will always capitalize on that. So perhaps the fact that this year the team competing against the PNG champions is a state side, as you say, who who won the state championship, that maybe in future years we, we would go yes. back to the club model because the club championship will be bigger and stronger, hopefully, and under the new governing body. We have a top eight uh, championship coming on this year for the Waterphone Cup in club championship. That's the elite level. And will you be involved in that personally? And if so, which club will you be looking after? I'm representing the Western State Rugby League, and I'm one of the main development officers here in the West. So uh, all clubs have been affiliated to our competition here in the West and then uh, back to Fiji National Rugby League. So you will have an involvement, will you, at, at club level and at state level? Because uh, I, I assume uh, you will continue coaching, with the Maroons. coaching level, coaching development, yes. Yep. I'll, visit, I'll be visiting clubs, but not directly involved in the, to the clubs. And I have to ask, of course, being the Western Maroons, any connection with uh, the Queensland Maroons over here in Australia, or is that just a coincidence? <laughs> well, uh, we, we've, we've just started our territorial origin uh, a few years back. Some talks have been going around, but uh, it, so far, uh, nothing yet has uh, really emerged. But uh, yeah. we always like to have uh, say, uh, some kind of uh, a version of uh, our own. But definitely, we are trying to get attached to the original one in Australia. I'm sure that would go down well in both countries. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And looking ahead to the game against the Wigmen, how much do you know about them? They have played once here against the Siltel in Lotoka. Siltel under the guidance of uh, Brendan Costin. But beyond that, this is going to be something of a new experience for you. Is it taking on this PNG team? I have coached uh, two teams against uh, Snacks Tigers in the last uh, five years. And uh, I'm, I'm quite well aware. And I'm uh, very glad that we also have uh, the expertise, the help, the support from uh, our head coach of the Fiji Bati assisting in camp with us. So Wiser has been with you to help with the preparations? On the coaching side, on some technicalities of the game, and uh, especially in, on how his uh, expertise on how we should uh, go against uh, the kind of plays that come from PNG. Uh, we have a fair chance this year. 
Velatuaki, head coach of the Western Maroons. So a big weekend for rugby league in Fiji and a big weekend of rugby union ahead too with the reigning Super W champions Fijiana and Drua starting the defence of their title against the Brumbies in Nandi. And they'll be doing it with a very different lineup from last season with 14 players that set to make their debut. Meanwhile, in Super Rugby Pacific, the Andrua will be in Dunedin to take on the second bottom Highlanders and Moana Pacifica will take on the Hurricanes at Mount Smart Stadium looking to end a run of four consecutive losses during which they have shipped rather a lot of tries, 26 in fact. And back on the rugby league field, the PNG Hunters will play their first home game of the new Queensland Cup season against the Tigers, which means they'll be up against their former coach, Matt Church. Now to uh, more soccer, because uh, we now know who will play who in the group stage of the OFC Champions League to be hosted by Vanuatu in May. Here's a rapid-fire version of how the draw played out with OFC Competitions Director Chris Kemp presiding. The first team drawn and into Group A is... Suva FC. The team into Group B is Ifira Blackbird. Our second team in Group A is Lupe Ole Soanga from Samoa. In Group B we have Hikari United from Papua New Guinea. Now into Group A we have Auckland City FC. Team number three in Group B is ISP Ray from Tahiti. Now to the final two teams. Final team in Group A is the Solomon Warriors, which leaves the last team to be drawn, Tigaspor from New Caledonia. Each team will play each other once in the group stage, with the winners and runners-up of each group qualifying for the semi-finals. So, just to confirm, Group A in Luganville will feature Suva FC from Fiji, Lupe Ole Sawanga from Samoa, Auckland City from New Zealand, and the Solomon Warriors in Group B, hosted by Port Villa, will be composed of Ifira Blackbird, representing the host nation, Hikari United from PNG, Espire from Tahiti, and Tiga Sport from New Caledonia. To cast his eye over the draw, we're joined now by Harry Addison, President of the Port Villa Football Association. Harry, good morning. Welcome to Pacific Beach. Good morning, Richard. Uh, I imagine uh, a lot of excitement building in Vanuatu. First time that uh, the country has had the opportunity to host uh, the OFC Champions League. And uh, importantly, you, you got the draw you wanted. Uh, the, the home club, Ifira, will be in Port Villa. Yes, that's correct, uh, Richard. Uh, fans in Vanuatu already excited to, um, to watch and see the OFC Champions League in May for the first time. You know, in the past, we have one group played in Vanuatu, but this time we we host the whole competition. Eight teams play in two different groups, as you all know. Uh, and also, as president of Port Vila Football Association, I'm very happy that Ibera Blackbird uh, is in the group B and play in the home ground in Port Vila. So it's going to be a very big competition, and Vanuatu is waiting. Now, Ifira have not played in the OFC Champions League before, so um, how do you rate their chances? Because uh, it looks like a pretty tough group. Uh, Kari United uh, back in the OFC Champions League, I think after a seven-year gap. Uh, Pere and Tiga from Tahiti and New Caledonia, no easy beats for sure. That's very true. The island nations, when you talk about Tika sport, first time ever, Ekari United, a lot of experience. And also, um, I aspire from Tahiti. Um, Ivera, as host of this competition in Groupie, uh, Richard, they're they going to fly to Australia on the 24th of April to prepare themselves for two weeks before flying back to Vanuatu on the 9th of uh, May, uh, a few days before the kickoff on Monday the 15th. So 
Ivera is looking forward. Um, Ivera's got a very good coach, experienced player, Robert Yalu, who played for Vanuatu um, for many, 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 uh, many tournaments in Oceania. And he is the Vanuatu development coach who won the uh, Friendship Cup between uh, Vanuatu Central Coast Marina uh, last year and uh, Vanuatu Time, and also uh, runner-up of the Melanesian or MSG Prime Minister's Cup uh, against Papua New Guinea in Vanuatu last year. So uh, they've got some good players. Uh, but at the end of the day, as you mentioned, Group E will be a group of that. The island teams will face each other, and it's not going to be easy in Port Vila. What about the lineup uh, in Luganville? I mean, Auckland City, of course, have been the team to beat in the OFC Champions League for many years now, apart from, I think, 2010 it was, uh, when Hakari United managed to win the, the Champions League. But so Auckland against Solomon Warriors, uh, Lupe from Samoa, Suva FC. Is it a case of who comes second? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Auckland, sorry, is always the favourite to become the first in Group A. Uh, but football, you know, Richard Levin is 11 against 11, and also they will play in Luganville. For Solomon Warriors and Suva, yeah, one of them will be the second in Group uh, A. But for Solomon Warriors, um, Luganville scored a player who played for Solomon Warriors, John Alec, um, and he will be the main person for Solomon Warriors, and he will get uh, the support from Luganville football, Luganville fans to support Solomon Warriors, in Luganville And also with Suva Football Club, we have uh, Astaria Solomon from Vanuatu. Uh, he played for Suva. So there will be a mixed feeling uh, for the supporters in Luganville. But at the end of the day, I think the supporters for Luganville will call for Solomon Warriors because of John Alec. And I recall going back a few years ago that when the uh, Pacific Mini Games were hosted by Vanuatu, people had their doubts about that event because it was coming on the back of a cyclone. H- here you are now about to host the OFC Champions League on the back of two cyclones. I mean, do you think that this will, will lift the spirits of the people of Vanuatu to have this kind of attention on them and to have this motivation, if you like, to, to get on and host an important event like this? Oh, yes, Richard. Um uh, cyclone is our friend. We we face a lot of cyclone every year, from October to April uh, every year, and we have a lot of experience with cyclone. And cyclone make us stronger. I think if you remember, we have a um, uh, a team in 2015 in Papua New Guinea Pacific Games, and we call themselves the Vanuatu Cyclones. So uh, we experience a lot of cyclones, but this this will not put us down. We will continue to prepare, especially for Ivra Blackbird. We will we will be ready. Um, to to host this competition, and I think this competition will give a smile to all the fans in Vanuatu. And uh, before the OFC Champions League uh, kicks off, there's a tournament taking place right now in Fiji. This is a Tri Nations international tournament. Solomon Islands, Fiji, Vanuatu, and the Fiji under twenty team involved. Uh, Vanuatu went down two nil to Solomon Islands uh, yesterday, so. It's going to be tough for them to win that tournament now, isn't it? But, it? but it's interesting that we have the three Melanesian teams there, but no Papua New Guinea. Are you surprised they're not involved? Uh, yes, I think it's it's not a Melanesian cup. It's just an invitation from the uh, Football Association to prepare the under-20 uh, before they go to the World Cup uh, this year, if under-20 World Cup. But um, it's a surprise because Papua New Guinea is always strong. After 2010, when Ekari won this uh, Champions League, they become stronger and stronger. So they won the MSG Prime Minister in Vanuatu last year. So, uh, yes, as you mentioned, Richard, I think Papua New Guinea should be uh, in this competition 
to help PT under 20, but PT uh, uh, host this competition. They won Vanuatu on Solomon Island. So um, we just wish them all the best in the last games coming up in the next few days. I know Vanuatu lost to Solomon Island. This is a 2 uh but I think it's good for Solomon Island too. They have lots of under 23 players in the team. For us, we need to start thinking about the future and we, we need to start using new players in the national team. So plenty to look forward to. Uh, one more round of matches in that Tri-Nations tournament in Fiji and then in May, uh, the IFC Champions League arrives in Vanuatu. Harry, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme and uh, best of luck with hosting the tournament. It's going to be a great couple of weeks. Thank you, Richard. Have a good day. Harry Addison there, president of the Port Villa Football Association. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paolo Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music. From across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Fale, Fridays at 2pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Time to take a break uh, from uh, the sporting news just for a moment here on Pacific Beats and take a look at some of the stories making news headlines around the region on this uh, Friday morning. Uh, Kyle Evans is uh, keeping an eye on the situation. Morning, Kyle. Good morning, Richard, and welcome back to the Friday Sports Show. <laughs> yes, it's been a while, hasn't it? But yes, good to be back. Thank you. Now, the first story, five men caught trying to set up an illegal supply chain between Australia and uh, Papua New Guinea. A story with a familiar ring to, us, t- uh, to it. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. So uh, uh, two Australian men uh, were caught uh, with an alleged $15 million uh, worth of methamphetamine uh, on board a light plane travelling from PNG. Uh, a further three men were then arrested who were sort of acting as acting as ground crew, uh, essentially. So this is reported by Nine News, and they say the two pilots were actually caught uh, yesterday morning uh, around central Queensland with 52 kilograms uh, worth of that drug on board. Um, police will allege that the men th- uh, flew flew the light aircraft from uh, from Sydney to uh, Belulo, north of Port Moresby, and then back again, which is where they were per- um, picked up. Um, it's, but However, it's actually the quantity of, of, of the drug that's got police worried. Um, they say given the amount of, uh, of of drugs on board, they believe the men were part of a much larger syndicate. Um, I mean, given the, the, you know, the, the operation behind it all, we're talking ground crews, burner phones, things like that. So that investigation is very much going to continue, not only in Australia, but in, uh, in PNG as well. So let's hope uh, that the PNG authorities can, can, can help them out and, uh, and yeah. Well, if it all turns out to be what it appears to be, it might make an interesting movie one day. We'll be talking movies shortly. But first, media organisations have made fresh calls for the Fijian government to uh, keep their word and repeal the existing media laws. So where do we stand here? Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting one, this one. A submission from several publications, uh, including the Fiji Times and FBC, uh, is calling on the coalition to repeal the Media Industry Development Act, uh, which has been in place since 2010. So this has been... a uh, been sort of ongoing for some time now since that new government uh, took office uh, and it follows a public consultation between media and government officials uh, which took place this week. And what's concerned them is the government's actually um, proposed a, a new bill 
uh, a, a new sort of uh, media bill. Um, and that bill's good in some ways because it's removed a lot of that content regulation which was plaguing them initially. However, there's certain laws within that new bill that have actually been preser- uh, preserved uh, around ownership. Now, one is that an editor... Uh, of a of a paper or, or a radio station or or, or, a, or a broadcast you know station or what have you, must be an ordinary Fijian resident. And the other is that at least ninety percent of a publication's ownership group uh, must be Fijian as well, uh, or risk a heavy fine. Now, radio the media reps they don't like that one too much because they worry that. These laws will stunt their growth, uh, and it also rules out things like foreign investment, which will make them sort of, uh, you know, more viable uh, long term. Long term, uh, and it also makes publications easier to deregulate. For instance, if uh, you know, if if for whatever reason, yeah, you know, a, a publication prints something that the government doesn't like, that's it's just another way they can sort of uh, essentially be punished. So yeah, pretty interesting on that front. Yes, it's a complicated business. Um, maybe they're trying to make it a little less complicated, but uh, we shall see. Now, I said we'd come back to movies and a new Tongan film about fans who went to um, extraordinary lengths at the 2011 Rugby World Cup is in cinemas today. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so uh, Red, White and Brass uh, is the film's title and it's officially out today in New Zealand. Now, we've reported um, on this one before, but thought it was worth another mention just given it's such a, it's such a great story. Uh, it's about a group of fans who missed out on tickets um, to the sold-out Tonga vs. France match back in that 2011 World Cup and actually formed a brass band uh, in order to get in. So the band was actually employed uh, to provide pre-match entertainment, uh, but no band existed sort of mere weeks before, <laughs> weeks before the match. So true underdog story uh, in a lot of ways really captures that uh, that Tongan spirit and, and passion for sport. And, yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, will you be seeing it, Richard? Uh, yeah, I might, I might check it out. Sounds like a lot of fun. It's a pretty innovative way of uh, getting around and not having any tickets, isn't it? So, yeah, <laughs> hats off to them. Sounds like a good story. Uh, from memory, it was a pretty good game as well. Yeah, great World Cup, that one, I believe. I can still remember France putting the uh, the fear of God in New Zealand in, 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 that, in that final as well. Got it. Could have gone either way. Oh, that was the one they won or lost, depending on your point of view, by a point, if I remember Yes. Right. It was very, yeah. very close, wasn't mm. it? Yes, okay, we'll look out for that movie. Get along and check it out. I think it could be a lot of fun. Carl, thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. Now, to more sporting matters here on Pacific Beach. It's the Friday morning edition with me, Richard Hewitt. So good to be back after a few weeks away. And some of the best weightlifters in the Pacific and some rising stars have gathered in Melbourne to compete in the Pacific Elite International event this weekend. Organised by Master Coach Paul Coffer and the Oceania Weightlifting Institute, the event will feature his own star name, the former Fijian lifter Eileen Thikamatana, and the cream of the multi-medal winning Samoan team who have made the trip from Apia. Also travelling with the Samoan team is a young lifter from Tuvalu for whom a big future is forecast. More to be said about him very shortly. The head coach of the Samoan squad and Paul Coffer's longtime rival in the Pacific is Jerry Warwick. And he says, while the Melbourne competition is not a ranking event, it's an important part of their build-up for the Olympic Games in Paris next year and the push for gold. The more competition, the better. Regardless the level of competition, we're happy to take part in anything. We're ready. 
We've done the training, and uh, from here we go back, and then we go to Havana, Cuba, one of the first uh, recognized qualifiers uh, by the IWF, and then uh, it just keeps going to India, Saudi Arabia, and then uh, Pacific Games in uh, Solomon Islands, and that's our four for this year. That's quite a tough ask, I would have thought, for you and the team, and a lot of travel involved in that. It is, but it's mandatory. We must take part in it uh, to get to the Olympic Games. It's part of the qualification system. And the main reason why we're here is that it's too long a break and we needed something in between. And um, not only for the competition, it's a training camp being held at the same time. And we just wanted to get away from home. We've been in lockdown for the last three years and we just wanted to get out of the country and train somewhere else and compete somewhere else before we actually start the big tournaments. Just how difficult is it going to be to qualify athletes for the Olympic Games this time round? Because the rules seem to get tougher and tougher and the number of places available for weightlifting seem to get fewer and fewer. It is very tough now, probably the toughest it's ever been. And on top of that, we must compete at all these internationals. They've stipulated four major internationals this year in certain times of the year. You miss one and that's it. You say goodbye to your dreams. On top of going to these four this year and one next year, in order to qualify, some of my elite have to be ranked in the top 10 in the world. By the end of all these qualifications, they must be ranked in the top 10. And if you miss the top 10, then you must be the number one seeded male athlete in Oceania and the number one seeded female athlete in Oceania overall. So clearly what you don't want to happen is for any of your athletes to perhaps uh, have a bit of an off day. This competition coming up this weekend as you say it's a great trial for them nothing at stake per se but clearly they want to do their absolute best but once they get into the qualifications there's no room for error is there the IOC have made this so hard you're correct there because you cannot afford to have an off that you cannot afford to bomb out if you do not record a total you're lost already so yes first of all we must participate and then at the same time we must perform to the best because you're also chasing that top 10 ranking. Looking at it from the positive end, though, if, if everything were to go right, do you see that there is a genuine prospect of, of Samoa picking up uh, Olympic medals and potentially maybe that elusive gold? Of course, uh, Elia Opelonga got, got the silver a few years ago now, and there are members of the Opelonga family in the team currently. Don, for example, I mean, surely on his day, he's more than capable, isn't he, of winning an Olympic gold medal? Yes, on uh, his day, competition is very tough. Realistically, we can win one or two, maybe even three medals. But the colour of the medals, I can't promise you, but we're in the running for it. We're in the running right up until a gold medal. And tell me, as you continue along the way to what we hope will be Olympic success in Paris, uh, this competition coming up this weekend has been organised by Paul Coffer at the Oceania Weightlifting Institute. You and he, great friends, but great rivals. I mean, there must be a bit of added spice there because clearly you want to get one over one another. When we're on the platform with lifters, we're competing like everyone else. Outside, uh, you know, we're the best of friends and there's that mutual respect. He's a father figure within the sport, been around for so many years. Inside the platform, it's a different story. We're fierce competitors, but after that, we're all part of the Oceania region and we're here to develop Oceania and make sure that Oceania does get on the map when it comes to the Olympic Games. And I noticed recently that you posted a video of a young weightlifter from Tuvalu who I think has been training with you in Samoa. I don't know whether he's with you on this trip or not, but can you tell me a little bit about him? I mean, has this young man got potential to pick up a medal, say, at the Pacific Games for Tuvalu or even go further than that? Definitely. Manuela Rabu, he's now a threat to win the gold medal in the Oceania Championships. 
and now even a, a contender for a medal or even a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games coming up. So yes, for them also it's history in the making. But he has the potential now. He's training well and he's here now. And uh, he will turn some heads on Saturday when he performs uh, because he's a nobody, no name. Uh, and now coming out for the really first time here and, uh, you know, uh, proving himself. But on top of that, we also have other countries that are there now training with us. We have Fiji, we have Kiripati, and they, they also have the same goal in mind. They want to qualify for the Olympics. They want to win gold medals at the Pacific Games, Sissi and Solomons. And uh, we're, we're just happy to assist. Uh, we want uh, the Pacific to grow. So as far as Oceania in, in general is concerned, weightlifting continues to be a sport at which a significant number of athletes can excel and can be good enough to compete on the world stage. I think so. Over the last 20 years, weightlifting has been a powerhouse uh, sport in the Pacific. It's been proven. They have the natural physique. It's just directing them and giving them under the right guidance, the right training. Anything's possible now. It's been proven now we can even win medals at the Olympic Games, World Championships. I think uh, we've just got to keep focusing on it for the Games to come. Jerry Warwick, head coach of the Samoa weightlifting team and the Pacific Elite International, will be streamed live from Melbourne from 2pm to 5pm local time tomorrow. If you'd like to watch the tournament unfold, then follow the link oceaniaweightlifting.com forward slash webcast. Pacific Beat. It's the story that has gone around the world. Marshall Islands, the last country on earth without a national soccer team, but determined now to put that situation right. The fledgling Marshall Islands Soccer Federation has appointed a technical director, an Englishman who has yet to visit the Marshalls, but who already has a plan in place to build the game from the ground up. However, you will struggle to find a soccer pitch anywhere in the Marshalls and in a country heavily influenced by the US. Interest in soccer, to be frank, is small. So, while international media outlets have been romanticising the Marshalls' soccer dream, what's the reality? As Jordan Fennell reports, the question is, will the sport ever get off the ground there? Right now, there's an international competition going on via social media, inviting people to design a playing shirt for Marshall Islands national soccer team. It's another example of the romance surrounding the Marshalls' bid to join the world's soccer family. But Divine Whitey, a member of the country's soccer federation, says in reality, they are starting from the lowest possible base. Developing the interest for soccer is one of the fundamentals that we have to do. And how do we do that? If we start with schools, then we build interest in the schools. And then if we are to build clubs, what kind of clubs interested people, but where does interest draw from? you got to somehow, somewhere, retain the interest to come out from the people. And how do you do that? you got to work with the communities. And one of the mapping we're trying to do was to identify communities and see is there a football pitch around each of those communities so that when somebody trains them, they have places to play. Because right now there is On reflection, Devine admits that's not strictly true. There is one baseball field that can be used for soccer at the far end of Majuro and a small national stadium to be used for the Micronesian Games later this year is under construction. But beyond that, there's nothing. Undaunted, Englishman Lloyd Hours, a highly credentialed coach, has agreed to take on the role of a long-distance technical director. I began a, uh, a coaching blog and it had weekly content, so session plans, articles and Q&As with people around the world and allowed me to network with a lot of people that 
I wouldn't have even thought to connect with and across different parts of the world, which was fantastic. Um, one of those guys that I led to talking to was a guy called Shem Levi, who is the president of the Marshall Island Soccer Federation. A lot of it was WhatsApp messages, voice notes and emails, really. And it was all quite informal initially. And then it started to become a little bit more formal with uh, myself being asked to produce a presentation on what I would do short, medium, long term and how I would help the Soccer Federation and connect it to my own philosophy and style. And then it went back to being casual slash formal again and led to me being offered the role as a technical director. And Hours has wasted no time. He's already mapped out a plan to start soccer development in the Marshalls. The immediate target is, yeah, provide opportunities to play. So the school curriculum is going to be the first portal for us and it's going to be amazing to see that how that develops. So that is the first stage of our process. Then it's going to be the youth structures and what we put in place and, you know, I've started to work on that and that will hopefully be rolled out soon across the nation. Divine Whitey says what MISF has been looking for is someone to train the trainers and Lloyd Hours fits the bill. This is where a lot of competition have held over the years, but mostly focused on basketball and volleyball. And so discussion with the enrichment program is to see that we embedded soccer into their curriculum. And so that was on and ready to go. And so at that time, there was a lot of interest shown. But what we were looking for is a technical person who can come and do the training for officers who actually goes to the schools and they run the soccer programs in the schools. But the fact that Lloyd Hours has yet to visit the marshals is a concern. From my point of view, he probably needs to come and see what's on the ground level to really understand, you know, bottom-up approach to really see how do you develop the interest where interest is not foreseeable here and who do you work with the schools the communities and then from that then we develop the programs i mean what i'm trying to say is we it's good for us to have the person but the person is to be here to see the reality of what's in the Marshall Islands first. For now, the technical director will continue to do his work remotely over the internet, but he hopes to be in country by mid-year. I am working predominantly remotely. Uh, I've pencilled in July as probably a more achievable time frame to hopefully raise funds to get out there because you know without OFC membership or any FIFA membership we don't have funding so we are very reliant on fundraising and sponsorship so it does come down to that for me to be able to go out to visit ideally I'd get out sooner than that and if I can get out in April May time then fantastic I'll do that and that would be great but there's things that I'd like to be a part of the process at some point and that would be coach education so for people that want to be coaches across the nation but also those teachers that are being trained to be delivering the sport i'd like to be part of that process of coach education and using my experience of doing that but also if i can get out to see how the youth structures are being developed the league structures are being developed but also parts of the national team process is being developed as well then brilliant but yeah i'd like to get out before july but it does come down to that fundraising aspect on the question of a national team and finding players to wear the shirt that wins the design competition, Lloyd Hours puts a positive spin on what might be possible. We want to look on shore. We want to see who can play and form part of a national team that is living in the Marshall Islands. We want to be homegrown. But there are Marshallese citizens across the world. And you look at the United States, for example, there's a big pool of Marshallese citizens that live in the States. You look at Arkansas and there are 30,000 and Marshallese citizens in one state, for example. And when you consider there's only 60,000 that live in the Marshall Islands itself, that's massive. So we have to look into different strategies as well.
And the reason that other nations locally are doing that as well is because it provides opportunities for not just those immediate citizens, but everyone across the world who's connected to it in some way. So if we can provide opportunities for people to represent their country, then that's what we have to do. But we will have a strategy at some point to look into playability across the world. But yeah, initial stages would be those onshore, homegrown locals that want to be part of the national team. But Divine Whitey is sceptical about the idea of recruiting players from the diaspora at this very very early stage of the game's development in the Marshalls. Marshall Islands has never built any soccer team since the Micronesian game started and because the soccer has just never been part of Marshall Island. And so to able to build a national team, that, that is one of our main aims then. We need to build that well and build it on a solid foundation, not just cherry picking from there just because somebody can kick in the United States, we bring him here, like what, for one, two months, and then or they go back to the States, then you still don't have a solid foundation in building a national team. Come July and the Micronesian Games, there will be the national stadium standing ready in Majuro, and it could easily host an international soccer match. But soccer won't feature in the Games this time anyway. So when might we see a team representing Marshall Islands take to the field? If Divine Whitey has his way, not for some time yet, not until soccer's foundations are established in the country, he says, but he concedes that the 2027 Pacific Games might be a target worth aiming for. We shall see. Jordan Fennell reporting on how the Marshall Islands hopes to join the world soccer family and get a national team onto the park for the very first time. But the road ahead looks like a pretty long one, doesn't it? But a fascinating story. Nonetheless, the last nation on earth without a national soccer team. Rounding out this edition of Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia, Jordan Fennell will be along this afternoon with the afternoon edition at 5 past 3 PNG time. I'm Richard Hewitt. Have a great sporting weekend.